Oh, shit! Again, it happened again. Blown away. Young Wei Tillman may not know what happened, but we know what happened. And we are going to get all up into that business today on this exciting episode of 3Bzine Presents Podcast, a.k.a. the TomCast Podcast. And I am your host, Tom. I'm back once again. We're here to dive into episode five of Watchmen. But before we do that, we have some business to take care of. We have to go and do our, our normal introductions. Please follow this awesome, small, independent podcast on social media. You can follow us on. You can find us on Twitter at TomCast underscore podcast and on Instagram at the TomCast underscore underscore podcast. Oh boy, it's one of those days. And if you're feeling like joining joining and becoming a member of Pophead Nation, head on over to Patreon.com forward slash TomCast podcast and become an awesome member of Pophead Nation, just like fellow Patreons, the Aspen Hill Chodies, and the Squidmaster General himself. Brian Broussard. That's right. Squid Master General. It's a real position. We just decided. So thank you guys so much for listening and tuning into this special edition show. We are continuing our series reviewing uh, each and every episode of The Watchmen because uh, it's fucking awesome. I don't know if you guys are paying attention. This show is incredible. And uh, we are going to get back to our, our more regularly scheduled programs where we discuss the news and review a bunch of things all at once in one program. But until then, right now, you have The Watchmen and you have The Mandalorian to focus on because this is taking over our lives. These two shows are incredible. And if you are uh, a a big nerd like I am, then you are just eating it up right now. All right, let's go into it. Watchmen, Episode 5, directed by Steph Green, written by Damon Lindelof and Carly Rae. And it is titled, Little Fear of Lightning. And that is a quote from something. As, as every episode of this series has been, there, there, is, there is a reference to something. And we'll talk a little bit about that in just a minute. But I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because this, this episode in particular, the, the, I have a, a, a insanely copious amount of notes that I took with this episode. There's at least uh, five pages here. I write all my notes on a yellow legal pad. And then I, I don't know why legal bad became my thing, but, uh, you know, when I, when I, I've always enjoyed legal pads and I still use them to this day at San Diego State. I don't, I don't like binders. I don't like spiral notebooks. Um, possibly it's because I'm left-handed and I, so the spirals and the, and the binders and all this stuff kind of get, get in my way, hinder and cramp my style. A yellow legal pad, you just flip the page, man. And I can write as, as I normally like, would like to write. So I love, 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 love yellow legal pads. And so all my notes are on those. If you wanted to know about that. <laughs> Anyways, this episode of The Watchmen might be... Um, I, I think to this point in the series, this, this might be my favorite one so far. And a lot of it has to do with the opening of this episode. Because the opening of this episode... Uh, has the most dramatic and the, and the most overt ties to the original graphic novel, to the original comic books that we've seen yet. It is off the charts. If if you're a fan of the original source material, I I, I think you were eating what this I, you were eating this episode up, especially the, this opening sequence where we flash back. All right, this episode opens 
November 2nd, 1985, in Hoboken, New Jersey, so just across the Hudson River from New York, from Manhattan, a young Wade Tillman is a missionary, all right? Now, if you're not sure Wade Tillman, a.k.a. in 2019, Wade Tillman's Looking Glass, in case that name's not ringing a bell. In 1985, though, he's just a young missionary from Tulsa, and he's here in Hoboken, New Jersey, to warn the people, you know, to warn... He's here to warn the people of the big city against the life of sin as that doomsday clock ticks ever closer to midnight. Remember, in the, in the comic, in the source material, in the film, November 2nd, the doomsday clock is at one minute to midnight. All right? And that's where we are when this episode starts. One not literally one minute. One minute from doomsday, but it's like 11.15-ish when the episode opens. But closing in on midnight. The night time is the right time, as they say. So we're in Hoboken. There's a giant street fair, and uh, the missionary convinced of nuclear Armageddon. They attempt to save the souls, and it's funny it, to 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 kick the to kick the episode off. Uh, the leader of the missionaries, I, I don't know the name of that title, but the reverend, the pastor, what whoever it is who oversees these young missionaries, uh, looks looks to young Wade. And, 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 and says to him the, the, the line that reverbs throughout this entire series so far, tick-tock, tick-tock, Wade has to get on it. He has to start saving some souls. And uh, after being, being rebuffed by a gang of street toughs, the top knots, by the way, first, uh, let, let's take a little diversion right here. This opening scene, like I said, is the most connected to the graphic, to the graphic novel. And there are an insane amount of callbacks to the graphic novel in this opening sequence. You know, I, I just mentioned the Top Knots as, as one of the, like the street gangs who is, uh, they're, in the com- they're in the comics. You see them in the comic book. But as, as Wade is walking through this, this, this local town fair, this little town carnival, you see someone reading a magazine, reading a comic book. And on the back page is an ad for the Veet Method, which is, you know, the ultimate, like, health thing that's, is, that's referenced in the comics. It, it's straight from the original graphic novel. You see uh, people wearing, wearing jackets, wearing, wearing uh, uh, pullovers with the band Pale Horse on there. Pale Horse plays into this episode later, but Pale Horse is a, a big prominent thing that's happening the night of Eleven Two in the graphic novel. You get that reference there as well. You see signs in this Hoboken scene to to Guar, not the cool metal band, but Guar, the uh, the gay women against rape. Those signs are in the background of 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 uh, at least one or two scenes in this opening sequence. Again, you get the top knots, and and it's just oh. if you've read the graphic novel, if if you're as in love with it as I am. These are all things that just you're, they're just blowing your mind as you as you notice them, and and one of the reasons why this podcast is a little bit later than we normally do for the Watchmen show, I watched this scene in particular, but the episode overall, I watched it a lot because there are so many connections, so many references to the source material that uh, uh, the, the 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 fanboy in me was just melting with joy and delight. And and if you are even a quarter of, of reverent as as I am of that material, you were you were in, in in heaven about this episode, especially that particular opening sequence, putting us right there in 1985. So what happens 
next. Young Wade, young naive Wade, uh, he, he, he falls for the sexual advances of a young woman. Um, and and he, he runs off with her into a, into a carnival fun house, a house of mirrors, if you will. Mirrors, looking glass. You see the connections? It's, it's not subtle. They're, they're right there. Uh, and eventually, you know, she's questioning him, you know, asking if he's a virgin, all these things, blah, 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 blah. Teen trauma, his trauma right there in this fun house, okay? She flips the script and she runs off with all of his clothes, you know, after she alludes to having intercourse with him, which never goes the way you think it's going to go. Trust me, I was a teenager once. Never went the way I thought it was going to go. She leaves him naked in a house of mirrors. Staring into the mirrors, Wade sees his true inner self and, and just admonishes himself in the way that he's able to peer into the criminals. When he's in that pod, he looks into himself and he, he just launches into a tirade against himself. He sees how weak he is and, and, and the poor decisions. Then all of a sudden, a ringing in his ears begins and you hear like, a, like almost a crack in the sky and the psychic shockwave happens. And we know what that psychic shockwave is. If you've read the comics, if you're familiar with the source material, Adrian Veidt has launched his grand plan to save humanity. The House of Mirrors shatters, and young Wade, uh, from the psychic blast, falls to the ground, blood coming out of his ears. When he, when he comes to his senses, he gets to his feet, and he leaves that House of Mirrors, and he walks into the streets, surrounded by the dead corpses. This was part of Veidt's plan. Three million dead. That was a projection. These were the casualties that Adrian Veidt deemed necessary for his plan to work. Casualties of war, per se. Wade walks into this horror, into this terror, of a victim of the psychic blast that Adrian Veidt has unleashed on the world. And like the mirrors around him, Wade is broken, and he will never be able to put himself back together again. As he screams to the heavens... What happened? We know. Those of us who know the comic, who know the movie, we know. But if you don't, if you're new to this, the camera does, in my opinion, one of the best pullbacks in the history of anything. We pull back from Hoboken, New Jersey. We pull back, back, back. We're across the river. We're crossing, we're crossing the river. We're across the river. Now we're in New York. Now we're in Manhattan. The music switches from, from a horror-esque, Halloween-ish kind of John Carpenter score to Frank Sinatra singing, you know, New York, New York, start spreading the news, baby. And as we full encompass ourselves in the city of Manhattan, we see it for the first time with our own real eyes on, on, on TV as opposed to what we saw in the cinema. We see Adrian Veidt's squid monster, his psychic squid monster from another dimension in the middle of Manhattan. Fans of the, of the source material, I would imagine we all rejoiced equally at what we just saw because for 30 years, this has been something we only saw on the page of a, of a comic book. You know, when, when, when Zack Snyder did his version of the, of the, of the Watchmen story for film, they changed the ending. It was no longer a squid monster. They went, they went with a, you know, what they considered a more plausible threat. You know, they went with nuclear Armageddon situation between America and Russia, which, yeah, sure, it's plausible, but it's not as fun as a giant interdimensional squid monster 
devouring parts of New York City and leaving three million dead in his wake. So we see that moment. And like, like I said, as a fan of the graphic novel, um, my, my heart sang with joy to see that squid monster in the middle of, of Manhattan, his tentacles sprawled across going through buildings. Just, uh, it, it's an incredible scene. And like I said, that pullback, the switching of the music is so insanely well done that, uh, yeah, woof. Adrian Veidt and his giant one-eyed alien cephalopod in the middle of the city it is the graphic novel brought to life, and it is utterly fucking fantastic. All right, so we're going to switch. Ooh, actually, before we switch, one thing we should mention, because it plays several times throughout, the, throughout this episode, the scene where young Wade is with the girl in the House of Mirrors the song we hear, George Michael's Careless Whisper, will be repeated throughout this episode. And it is almost always when Wade is with a female character. So one of those things that you kind of want to pay attention to. So now as we shift to 2019, it should be stated that Tim Blake Nelson, who thus far in the series has done a fantastic job with the, the moments he's been allotted for screen time. This is his episode. This is his time to shine. You may know him if you saw Buster Scruggs on Netflix, the one by the, by the Coen brothers. Tim Blake Nelson's awesome. And he fucking kills this episode. It is legit fucking fire. It is a top-notch performance. There's so many subtleties and complexities to his character and to what he's going through. And we're, we're going to talk about a lot of that. Um, but the way, the way Tim Blake Nelson portrays that and, and, and emotes that and, and, and shows it on screen is, um, in my opinion, uh, just, that is just some seriously legit acting skills. And, uh, my respect for that man has gone up tenfold. I, I, I liked him a lot before and now I just, I'm like, the way he's owning this character, get out of here, get out of here. Okay. All right. So we're back in 2019. And uh, we, we find out that Wade Tillman, he has a bit of a cover job. He's kind of living that dual life. He has his, his masked persona as a Tulsa, Oklahoma police officer. But he has a 9-to-5 gig as well where he's unmasked. And uh, we find out that his, 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 job, his cover job is, is, a, is a, basically as an analyst, a, a human lie detector for focus groups. And as the episode opens, his current assignment is for an ad company that is attempting to bring tourism back to New York City. And it, it's, it's, it's interesting to, to realize that despite the 34 years that have happened in, in the meantime since you know, Adrian Veidt's hoax alien invasion in New York City, people don't want to go back. So they're doing these ad campaigns to try and get people to come and spend their money and, and, and put New York back on the map. But people are in fear. People are uh, terrorized by the idea of this. And it leads into something that we'll, t- we'll talk a little bit more about later on. Um, and something that I found infinitely fascinating, which was that for the people who were there in particular, but the people who were survivors and, and who lived to encounter it, Adrian Veidt's attack is, is um, it's that world's version of 9-11. I mean, it's referred to as 11-2. 
and it is that world's biggest, deepest trauma. And, and, um, you know, uh, that resonated with me quite a bit. Uh, 9-11 is something that is, uh, I don't, I don't want to over play my hand on, on this because, you know, I didn't live in New York City during 9-11, but I was in, so I wasn't there for the towers, I, you know, but I watched it on TV. I was in D.C. D.C. was attacked as well in 9-11. Some people tend to forget that the Pentagon was, had a plane crash into it as well. And, and, um, you know, I was, I was 20 minutes outside of the, out of the district. So 9-11 resonates with me in a, in a very strong way. Um, one of, one of my, something that I, I'll, I'll never forget, a memory that, that, that no matter what kind of ailments I come under, I'll never forget is, is, is taking the Metro. Once, once public transport opened up again in, in Maryland, in, in the DC area, uh, was taking that trolley down in, into DC and walking the streets of DC, the you know District of Columbia, the the nation's capital, and it was a ghost town, and I had never seen anything like that before in my life, and um, that's one of those things that kind of stays with you. So to kind of pull on those strings a little bit with this with this particular episode, making you know Adrian Veidt's alien invasion hoax, this world's nine eleven, I th- I thought was. Um, was bold and, and, uh, I mean, just fascinating. I mean, you know, that, that's a real trauma. 9-11 is a real trauma for a lot of people, particularly people in, in New York city who are around that. But, um, you know, living, living with that kind of, of fear, living with, with the repercussions of, of the, that act of terrorism against, against this country, um, I thought it was a, a extremely savvy uh, move by the by the by the creators and by the writers of the of the series to to make eleven two their version of nine eleven, and uh, to me it, it just hit all the right notes. I loved it. I loved the way they did it. I loved the way that and we're going to talk about it here in a second here, but like how how the people not even if you weren't there, there are the repercussions because. Veidt's attack was, I mean, it was a different level. The, the psychic attack and, and how it affects not just the person, it, but it, 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 it would alter, like, DNA to a sense so that, like, a pregnant person or a person who was, who, who was, or a person who wants to have a baby, if they have that trauma in their, in their body, in their, it becomes in their cells, and they transfer it to their offspring. It, it's just... I thought it was a, a, a phenomenal touch of storytelling, like kind of dealing with the repercussions. You know, these are events that we've we've heard referenced on the show so far, but to see actual consequences, to see how people have to suffer and 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 are still dealing with these things thirty four years after they happened, uh, it just really it really blew blew my mind, and and um. Yeah, it it's it was it was it like I said, it really kind of just just got me really caught up in the show in a way I hadn't to this point. But back to Wade, Wade has this job as as and and he's surveying, and he's giving feedback to this this group of people who are trying to bring tourism back to New York City and they're reading off the scores of the 
of the surveys that they've given to their 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 focus group, and they're they're all tens across the board, and and Wade just cuts through that, and 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 he tells them that these people are lying to you. They are putting on a brave face because they don't want you to see how terrified they are, and you know the the idea that the city of New York is is still in in the in you know, almost crisis mode because no one wants to go there because they're scared of this. And they're scared of, you know, remember this, this world has the, the squid falling from the squat, falling from the sky. It it wasn't a one-time thing. There, there's still a constant reminder that their world is vulnerable to interdimensional breaches of squid monsters. Despite the fact that we all know who are watching the show that it was a giant hoax. But these people are in fear of it, and it makes total sense. And again, it's it's a layer to the show that just, to me, shows me that Lindelof and, and the people he brought on board are paying attention to that source material, and they're thinking about these things in a way that is super realistic and, and utterly reverent to the source material. So Wade, as we're focusing on, he lives this dual life and is complete with dual cars, you know, a, a system of garages where he changes his, you know, fuel-efficient Prius-type vehicle for his, his, you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma masculine truck that he drives around. He has his looking glass masks all over the place. And uh, uh, it, the fact that he has multiple masks is, is interesting, and we, we get a little bit more into that as the episode plays out because we, we, we learn that his masks are made of a substance called reflectatine, which is a substance that is designed to protect from psychic attacks. And as we will also discover later in the episode, we find out that Wade, as a person who was there in the blast radius of the psychic attack, suffers a, 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 a severe trauma uh, from that. And so he needs the reflectatine to kind of keep his wits. So now we go to the police precinct. Lori Blake organizing the cops to seek out the church from the 7th Cavalry's video that we saw back in the first episode of the show. She wants to use that church as a, as a reference point to help locate them. You know, and it also becomes clear that the FBI is running the show. The detectives are in the crowd. They're in their masks. You looking glasses there, Red Scare, uh, Pirate Jenny... And, of course, Looking Glass. So after the meeting, Sister Knight approaches Looking Glass at his, at his desk, uh, and she wants an update. Remember, the last episode, she gave him those pills for his ex to analyze and get some information for her. She wanted to know what they were. After this scene plays out, where Looking Glass says that he doesn't have any information just yet, and he's not willing to push his ex for material until she's ready, uh, Lori comes out of her office and she summons who she calls quote-unquote mirror guy, which is clearly a tactic to, to get under her skin, into her office. And so they, they meet. They, she, Lori is going over Wade's file and she realizes that he was there on 11-2, part of, the, part of the initial blast radius for the psychic attack. We get a little bit more of that glimpse of the, of the PTSD that Wade has from surviving that night. We also find out uh, uh, an important piece of information, too, that, that Wade did not join the Tulsa, Oklahoma Police Department until after the White Knight occurred. So after the 7th Cavalry had assaulted members of the police force, 
that's when he joined up. That's when he signed up because he said justice needed to be applied. And what Lori takes from that is that it's because he has a trauma and he has a psychosis. And once police officers were allowed to wear masks, that's when he stepped into to become a police officer because he was able to hide himself behind a reflected teen mask so that he could not only shield his face but shield the pain that he suffers on a regular basis because of that psychic attack. You know, Lori even asked how he sleeps because, we, we, you know, she makes, it, she makes us aware as an audience that, that the people who were in the blast radius have great distress from that attack. You know, it lingers with them. They, they close their eyes to go to sleep and they're haunted by things. And that reflective teen that, that Looking Glass uses so often helps keep those thoughts out of his brain, out of his mind. So he responds that he sleeps great, but we know why, because of that reflective teen now. So we have a name for that substance, for why that mask is what it is, and why he wears it so much. You know, we, we saw in the earlier episodes him sitting there watching TV, watching American Hero Story, eating, eating dinner with that mask on. And we wonder what's that about. Now we know, like he, that mask is as much a crutch for him as it is, uh, as it is a, as a help. You know, he needs it, but it needs him almost in a, in a, in a certain sense. And um, he's a lot more stable with it than he is without it. We also find out in that scene with Laurie in Looking Glass that Laurie's bugged the cactus on his desk, so she knows about the conversation that he just had with Sister Knight about the pills. So Wade kind of plays it off and, and doesn't, doesn't want to give up on, doesn't want to rat out Sister Knight at this point. You know, he's going to protect his, his, his friend, his colleague. And Lori just kind of lets it go. And they walk away. And that's that. Now we go to, to Wade's home life. We see Wade's home. Remember, last time we met him, he, he was in a bunker. But he has a home. The bunker's in his backyard. That bunker's there for a reason. You know, Wade comes in, and he's got a giant catalog from EDS, which is extra-dimensional security, all right? Which, again, one of those things that, that we know is a total fucking scam. But because of the trauma that was inflicted on Wade, because of what he suffered with these psychic attacks, with the squid attack, you know, he is 100% bought in that he needs defense from the from extra-dimensional squid attacks interesting just fucking fascinating stuff and again we we talk about about the reflected team and the mask that it wade wears and and we find out that he's also he also lines his hats with it so even when he's not wearing the mask it's in side of the ball caps that he wears and and it just kind of shows how deeply scarred he is from those events in 1985 you know, so he, he puts his mask on, half-masked. He puts it, rolls it up so he can eat. What's he eating? He's eating baked beans, baby. What's that a reference to? That's a Rorschach reference, if I've ever seen one. Rorschach breaking into the house of Night Owl 2, uh, to the house of Night Owl 2, and just helping himself to a can of beans. This is, this is a classic Rorschach, the other full-masked vigilante that we saw in the, in the graphic novel, in the film. And uh, so they're, they're kind of drawing these comparisons between the two. They're, they're, they're sort of parallel in a lot of ways, but the psychoses are very, very different. And, and the methodologies and, and the, um, the rationales are different, but there's a parallel between Looking Glass and Rorschach. And I think 
anyone who's paying attention when the, when the trailers first rolled out and we saw this character with the full mask, I mean, I, th- I think you instantly thought of like, oh, that's the new Rorschach. It's a little bit more complicated than that. He's watching the next chapter of under of uh, American Hero Story, focusing on hooded justice, and it's this this particular uh, episode is documenting the the affair between him and Captain Metropolis. You know, it's it's uh, it, two men in, engaged in intercourse, and it it kind of chronicles hooded justice's fear of revealing his identity, the fact that he's even making love. He stays in that costume. He stays in that hood. And uh, we never see his face, even even in an intimate moment, which says a lot about that character. So I'm wondering how much more they're going to play that out. It's, it's pretty interesting what they're doing on there. When all of a sudden, alarms sound, and we don't know what that means necessarily at first. Wade takes off. He leaves the house. He darts to his bunker. And we find out that the, the alarm is an extra-dimensional breach. And it's a drill that that Wade runs. He, and um, all of a sudden, he can't turn the alarm off, though. But as he's trying to turn that alarm off and reset his system, we, we see that Wade has on his wall a degree in extraterrestrial squid science, which if that was a course offered at San Diego State, I would take twice because it sounds amazing, because it's based on total bullshit, which is how I'm going to get a degree from San Diego State in the first place. So there's a nice circle of life kind of thing going on there. So I love it. I soaked that up. It was a fantastic. Um, <laughs> the alarm won't shut off. Wade's clearly sick of it. He knows it's a drill because he scheduled it. He he runs these drills constantly because of his 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 fear, his terror, his his trauma that he that the extra dimensional breach inflict on him. So he ran back. He runs back into his house and he rips the unit out of his wall and just beats the shit out of it. Um, and then. He makes the call to customer service, and uh, he makes that call to customer service demanding a new unit immediately because he can't be without it. You know, so again, like the reflected teen, that alarm is 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 sort of a crutch for his life. And we also find out that EDS, this extra dimensional security company, is also the provider of the reflected teen because he orders another roll of it. So this guy is is his trauma is. Uh, it, it's it's real to him. It, it's it's it is deep and it's scarred. Like like we mentioned at the beginning of the show, like that house of mirrors, like the the broken glass around him. Wade Wade Tillman is a very broken man on the inside, and it's just he's held together basically by Reflectatine in a sense of of justice. All right, so let's let's go back just a little bit and and talk about the title of the episode, "Little Fear of Lightning." This is part of a quote. Of a, of a larger quote from uh, Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That's 20,000 Leagues as a measurement of depth, not 20,000 like Justice Leagues, because that's way too many Justice Leagues. So 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and the full quote from the book is, if there were no thunder, men would have little fear of lightning. And it's pretty, uh, it's pretty obvious what, what, they're, what they're getting at. Um, the giant squid scared people so much that it that it ended the Cold War in an instant. You know, that's that was Adrian Veidt's plan. And as effective as the plan was, yes, it worked, but it left scars and it left trauma. And what we're doing with this episode is we're seeing those scars and that trauma of what Adrian did in his in, in what what Adrian left behind in his wake to succeed. And um you know, obviously Adrian, uh, you know, 
he didn't pause when it came to killing three million people in order to save a billion more. But did he did he did he consider those who would live and still suffer from things? It, um, that's an interesting question because I, I I went back to the source material and I'm not a hundred percent sure if that's true. And without a full rereading of, of the graphic novel, I'm not, I'm not sure I can say for 100% sure that he did consider casualties. It seemed very black and white to him at the time, which kind of plays into his character. But we're going to get more into Adrian a little, a little bit later. All right? So let's get back to Wade. That alarm's gone off. He's ripped it out of the wall, busted it down. But uh, because, because his alarm's no longer in place, he's going to spend his night in his bunker. And he stares off at the bunk beds while he sleeps on the couch. And he pulls that mask down over his face so he can sleep tonight without, without having to suffer a psychic attack of some sort to keep him awake and to keep him in fear. Uh, the next morning, he goes to the company Forever Pet, which is a pet cloning company, it seems like. And his, it, apparently his ex is a, a cloner at this, this laboratory where they clone pets. And we meet Cynthia, his ex. And she has the information on the pills. Um, she's, kind of a, <laughs> she's kind of a monster in a lot of ways because she's doing this comparison on these dogs that she's attempting to clone. And, uh, you know, Wade, being, the, being the, the honest observer that he is, mentions that the dog's a little small compared to the original dog. And she just shoves the dog into a drawer, which is a, basically like a failure drawer, basically, and, and is going to incinerate that, that, that clone dog, which... Well, that's just kind of sad, but oh my gosh, how could you, I don't know how you could do that every day of your life, just put a, I'm just going to put some dogs in a kill drawer and, and incinerate them. So she's kind of got some things going on too, uh, but she seems like a nice enough lady, I suppose, with the, with the exception of the dog killing. No, oh, don't even get me started. So Cynthia tells Wade that the pills that she gave him for analysis are nostalgia. It's called a drug, a pill called nostalgia. Again, another reference to the comic book. This is uh, nostalgia in the comic was a a perfume that that the Vite was was selling to the masses at the time. Now this is apparently a drug uh, made by Lady True's company that allows uh, users to experience memories, your own memories. Um, Potential side, potential side effects include psychosis. And there's, it's very clear that you are not supposed to ingest the memories of others. This is for your own well-being. So you can kind of relive a moment of your life. You do not want to take these to relive the moments of other people's lives. Uh, like I said, a high chance of psychosis. Uh, Cynthia obviously is, is very familiar with Wade. She knows all about his past and his trauma with women uh, even even the, even his, his his trauma prior to the squid, with, which is his trauma with women, with with the girl who took his clothes and left him alone naked in a house of mirrors, and and there's, there's a reference to that and, and why their relationship didn't didn't quite work, and um, again just layers and layers of complexity here. After the meeting with with Cynthia, Wade goes and we find out that he he hosts meetings for people with extra dimensional anxiety, people like himself. And um, we, we, we find out through, the, through one of the people in the group that about, about the genetic trauma level, you know. This person was born 10 years after 1985, but 
the trauma of, of this, that psychic blast went into his mother's DNA and rewrote her, her genetic structure to a certain extent. So he inherited the trauma. He inherited the pain from his mother because she was there in New York at the time. Uh, as this gentleman is finishing up his story, a, a new member joins the group. And um, she is, well, A, a female, but she's also kind of casual about everything, kind of dismissive of things. You know, Wade, Wade, Wade acknowledges her, but kind of leads her, you know, leaves her alone at the same time. Yeah, Wade goes on to talk about, again, he takes control of that group. He mentions how he's not afraid, and they have a, a, a little mantra that they say to kind of, uh, again, this, this is a group. This is like a group session, group therapy session. And so they try to be there for each other, just like the way someone would in AA or someone would be there for, you know, a, a domestic abuse group. You know, it, it, it's about the unity of the group and, and, and helping each other get through what they have to get through to, to live their lives as the best they, to the best they can. Now, this person, this new person, this female, she ends up waiting for Wade outside of the meeting and they have a little bit of a conversation where she kind of calls him out and, and, and says that uh, she thinks he's full of shit, that he's not, that he is afraid, in fact. And, and um, she challenges him to follow, follow her and, and, and grab a beer. And they go to a bar, and you see them form a bit of a connection. There's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, cross-section and, 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 and connections made and things like that. But it, it's hard not to think at the same time as you're watching it that, that this is all a little convenient. This is all a little, um, I, guess, I guess convenient is the best word for it. You know, if you're watching the show, you know, you have a nose for, for drama and for when things don't quite add up. And, and coincidence is rarely a thing on a TV show. So Wade randomly meeting a, a, a woman that he finds interesting in the midst of all the drama surrounding him at this particular point in his life it seems a bit far-fetched, but he's, he's not looking that far past his nose on this one. So he, he kind of falls for it. So they get a little drunk. She calls for a friend to come pick her up. And, and as that friend comes to pick her up, Wade notices that the, that the truck that picks her up is, is rather familiar looking. And then as it drives away, it hits a bump and uh, a piece of lettuce shoots out the back, which instantly takes Wade to episode one when, when uh, the uniformed police officer was murdered by a 7th Cavalry member who was driving a truck full of lettuce. So Wade radios it in and goes in pursuit. He, he follows. He find, and as they park their car at a, at a, a, a random abandoned building, the lady that Wade was with and the driver get out and they put on their Rorschach masks. Clearly, 7th Cavalry members. Wade enters. He pursues. He calls. He radios for backup and he gets confirmation that he's going to get support. So Wade enters. And as he enters, we find him walking into like a, basically a soundstage. And he sees the church from the video, the one that Agent Blake just sent them all out looking for so they could track down the 7th Cavalry members. It's a fraud. It's a fake. It's total Hollywood bullshit right there in the middle of Tulsa. And then what he stumbles upon is 7th Cavalry members experimenting with a CX-924 teleportation window. And, uh, yeah, they're fucking around with portals, which, as we, we know now, as we now know about, about Looking Glass, not a fan. Not a fan of dimensional portals. 
and that's when it gets exposed basically that 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 woman that that lady seventh cavalry member brought him there for a reason we uh, he's approached by another Rorschach we recognize that voice it is senator joe keen and he reveals that he and Judd Crawford are seventh cavalry leaders and that, that he stepped in to take control of the group so that events like the White Knight didn't ha- don't happen again. Uh, they, they seem to be acknowledging that the White Knight was a mistake, but that the 7th Cavalry is there for, for a good reason, which seems to be contradictory to everything we've seen so far. Now, you can go onto that PDP, the PDPedia page via HBO.com that we mentioned, and there, there is uh, documentation that uh, Joe Keane's father and Judd Crawford's father um, were high-ranking members of the, of the Ku Klux Klan. And so those two families seem to have a connection here. And that this plays up on that. Uh, Senator Joe Keene is extremely interested in who killed Judd Crawford, which sort of debunks any aspirations that we might have thought that it was 7th Cavalry related and kind of leads into the crazy notion that perhaps Will Reeves, the 100-plus-year-old man, is the one who killed Judd Crawford. The thing that we thought outlandish is all of a sudden a lot more plausible because the 7th Cav has just been removed as a suspect because of Senator Joe Keene. So the senator approaches Looking Glass. They have a little, little, little sit-down, a little conversation. You know, That's where he reveals his connection with Crawford and, and those things. He also says that he wants Angela Abar sidelined. And he knows that, that Lori... Blake is on to her as the prime suspect in, in, in Crawford's murder, and he kind of wants Wade to kind of keep pushing her in that direction. And then he decides to show Wade a video that he's come across. And this is one of those villain moves where you, you come after the guy who you think has that, that strict, strong moral code, but you're about to blow up his world. And that's exactly what Keene does to Wade Tillman right here. What he does is he puts on a video that he was shown once he was elected as a senator and put in charge of a, one of the committees. He's shown this video from Adrian Veidt, recorded on 11-1-1985, right before the attack, the hoax attack of the interdimensional squid bean. And this video is, 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 is Adrian Veidt congratulating Robert Redford on his presidential election in 1993. And he's doing this to... This, this is Veidt's thing. you got to remember, Veidt is an egotist. He plays it off like he's some kind of great benevolent you know, savior of humanity. But you have to realize, he, it, it's probably eating him up that he saved the world from nuclear Armageddon, but he can't get any credit for it because he had to manufacture an interdimensional alien being to stop East and West from blowing each other up with nuclear missiles. So he does this video, and this video seems to be like his way of being like, hey, look at me, I'm the guy who did all this, I'm right here, thumbs up and everything. So in this video, he admits to 1993 elected Robert Redford, the new president, that this was the plan. This was... Part of the plan from the moment that he did the alien, the faux alien invasion, he predicted 
and did everything in his power to ensure that Robert Redford would be elected the president in 1993. So we see that Adrian had an entire conspiracy beyond just the cephalopod attack, beyond the giant squid in New York. There was a much longer-ranging goal. So he did see, he did foresee past 1985, but what he didn't foresee was all the all the damage, all the trauma that he would inflict on survivors. So seeing this video once again shatters Wade's life, the life that he constructed from pieces of broken glass from that house of mirrors in 1985 crumbles back to the ground again as he finds out it was all for nothing. Everything that he thought was true is wrong. So as we get this video of Adrian Veidt, the story now shifts to Adrian Veidt. And a, a lot's come out recently about Adrian Veidt's story uh, via some interviews with Damon Lindelof of, on, on Collider. We, re, we realize that every time we go to a chapter of Adrian's story in an episode of the show, it's been one year later since the last event. So five episodes in, and we are... Five, episode, five years into Adrian's imprisonment. Now, just like last episode alluded to, Adrian seems to know that there, there is an edge to this, this, this preserve that he's on. And uh, he launched, via catapult, Adrian launches himself into this, to the edge of this, to the edge of this game preserve that he, seen, he seems to be a prisoner of. And that's when we realize that uh, Adrian is in either... I, I, for, for the time being, I, I will consider it a pocket dimension. Pocket dimension, possibly an alternate dimension, uh, you know, something like that. Uh, he comes out of this and we re he finds himself on the surface of... Uh, he's on Europa, one of the moons of Jupiter. We can tell that from the background. And then Lindelof, via an interview, confirmed that it was Europa. So that's why I say that. I'm not just making that up. Um, so once on the surface of Europa, he uses the bodies of the dead Mr. Phillips's and Mrs. Crookshanks that he's been launching via catapult to make a message for a passing satellite. And it says, save me. Uh, and then he's yanked aggressively back into that pocket dimension where he is greeted by the game warden, the one who shot at him before and sent him that strongly worded letter. And we find out that Game Warden is, in fact, a, another version of, of Mr. Phillips. And they have an entire discussion about, about the world that they're inhabiting and about the God that left them behind. And, and it seems to be what they're hinting at is that, you know, at the end of the graphic novel of Watchmen, uh, Dr. Manhattan implied that he was going to leave our dimension or leave our galaxy and, and, and try to create life. And perhaps this is that 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 project of his, and and uh, he didn't like the results of it, and so he just left it, and abandoned it, and and that seems to be where Adrian has been right now in this abandoned new world that Doctor Manhattan was constructing. Will that come to fruition? Not sure. It does seem to be strongly suggested, though, that that's what's going on here. I you know I, last week we talked, and we kind of left some wiggle room in case Lady True had more to do with this than we were giving her credit for. But this episode seems to, seems to squarely put things back in, in Dr. Manhattan's hands. 
as far as who's responsible for, for Adrian's imprisonment and, and who's responsible for this pocket world and in the in these these creatures, these creations, these the, these Phillipses and, and Crookshanks that that uh, Adrian is able to conform into being his servants and to being his uh, assistants and helpers. And so at the very end of this, the game warden arrests Adrian Veidt. So we'll see what's going to happen next. But he sent his message. It's been picked up by a satellite. I don't know where it's going to go next. We don't know much about uh, uh, space travel in this alternate reality. You know, like, it, you know, it, it, does NASA keep progressing? Or is it like our, our, our version of 2019 where it's kind of stagnant and we don't do much and we just launch robots and probes and it's kind of boring? Like we're never, never going to boldly go anywhere. Uh, that that is a question to be answered on a future episode, it would seem to be. So Adrian's under arrest, and now we shift back to Wade. Un, he's unable to focus on his work. He knows this truth now, and it just gnaws at him. And he knows that everything in his life that he believed for the last 34 years is wrong. So he's he's kind of in in pieces emotionally. In, uh, in, in, in a lot of ways, his life has no meaning now. So he's at the station and he's just sort of staring off into nothing. And uh, as, as he's doing that, again, we hear careless whisper. We heard it at the beginning in 1985 when he's at the carnival. We heard it again when he's with, I, and I might, have, I might have neglected to mention, but we heard it again when he meets with Cynthia, when he meets with his ex at, at, the, at the labs for the pet cleaning facility. So this George Michael song prevalent throughout this episode uh, interesting, interesting stuff. And it, 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 each version of the song you hear is a little different than the version you hear before. Like you heard the original version in the 85 scene. Then you hear the kind of like a, like an elevator music, like a Muzak version of it when he's with Cynthia. It's a lot different. And this version, closer to the original, but still a little bit different in, in, in this scene. And so what happens here is he's at his desk at the, at the precinct. Sister Knight comes over, Angela Abar, Wants more information on those pills. She wants to know if he has any information, and and so clearly, it, obviously, he knows. He knows that that Senator Keene wants Angela out of the way. He knows that Lori Blake is on to her, and he decides for whatever reason, whether it's, it's a lap, lapse in judgment or whether it's uh, he's been corrupted by the Seventh Cav he decides to lean into it and he's going to give Blake and Keen what they want. So he's going to have that conversation about the pills right there at his desk where he knows Lori's listening. And he tells Angela that the pills are nostalgia. And so he demands to know what's going on. And Angela, I think to glass, I think rather surprisingly actually admits what's going on, that they are pills from a person who has, Claimed to have killed Chief Crawford. Spoilers, I know we were trying to avoid talking about that for five episodes, but at this point, if you're still listening to the show, you're probably watching the show. Um, and that Will Reeves, the person with the, who gave her the pills, is in fact her grandfather. And she, the pills were left for her. I think you see a momentary reaction on Glass's face as he realizes that 
oh, she does trust me. I just made a big fucking mistake. Because she admits these things to him. And as she does, Lori comes screaming out of the office, gun drawn, putting, placing her under arrest. But before the cops can surround her and arrest her under Lori's orders, she swallows the entire vial of nostalgia. And that's also to Looking Glass's shock. So a lot's happened right there. We, like, like we established, it, it was documented, it, it was shown. Uh, you don't take nostalgia that doesn't belong to you. You don't want to consume other people's memories. So Sister Knight, Angela Abar, now at severe risk for, for some kind of psychosis, some kind of psychic break potentially. We'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, but she gets arrested and, and detained and, and taken away in handcuffs. And Looking Glass is kind of left... He seems to be a little stunned. I, I, I may be reading that scene wrong, but I may be a little... You know, it seemed to me that he was a bit stunned that she would confide in him about this, this grandfather and about these pills and about this, this, this seeming confession of a 100-plus-year-old of a man that he's the one who put Judd Crawford in a tree. Um, so he goes back home, and he's dealing with his, his now conflicting emotions. He, uh, a, a lot's happened to Wade in the last, you know, 24 hours. You know, his life's been shower, shattered. He's betrayed a colleague to, to the 7th Cav, to the FBI. And, and I, th- I think it gnaws at him a little bit. But his new, his new EDS alarm system is waiting for him. Uh, and he goes, despite the fact that he knows it's all a lie, he, he gets really excited about it. And then he realizes that, like, hey, okay, cool. I'm just going to throw this fucking thing away. He holds it in the trash can. And then five seconds later goes to get it back out again because I don't think Wade's quite comprehended that uh, living a life without the security, uh, Wade hasn't quite realized how to live a life without those security blankets that he's put in place for himself. So he grabs that unit back out of the, out of the trash can, knowing that he still needs it to, to get on with his everyday life. You know, th- that lie has been exposed, but he's believed it for so long that uh, he, can't just give, he, can't, he can't just let it go just yet. And, and again, that says a lot about the character. And again, Tim Blake Nelson has a lot of dialogue in this episode. Don't don't misunderstand me. But he says so much when he's not talking, through the way that he emotes, through the way that he just carries himself. Uh, this episode is so fucking fascinating. I could sit here and dissect it even more. But I think I, I feel like I've dissected it um, as as best as I can without having to bore you guys with uh, getting into. Uh, pseudo psych psychological profiles, which is definitely not my repertoire, in my in my repertoire. Um, so the episode ends. Wade goes inside with his new unit, and the seventh Cavs gotten what they wanted from him. So they roll up to his house, a gang of four or five guy, seventh Cav members, guns out, locking shotguns in place, and it looks like they're going to go and kill Wade Tillman. They're going to put an end to Looking Glass now that he's no longer useful to them. And that's how the episode ends. And it's stunning. It's a stunning cliffhanger, I thought. And uh, it, it, it's, it's interesting to postulate what may happen next, uh, but it's more fun to kind of consider, again, that psychology of, of, of Wade Tillman, of Looking Glass. And, and re- you know, did, does he realize he made a mistake? Does he realize that he overreacted? Does he think he made a poor decision? You know, it, 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 it's... And, 
more importantly, is he going to get out of this? Is, is this, this looming 7th Cavalry attack um, going to be something he, he can fend off and escape from so that he can uh, potentially correct the, the wrong that he made? Um, we're, we're, we're left in a strange place with, that, with, with him and that character at this, at this point. Um, but there's so much information to also parse through. Clearly, the 7th Cavalry is not just, you know, obviously their, their racist agenda is, is, you know, known and, and, and prominent, but they seem to be up to something else and something far more bigger and grandiose than we, we thought initially, too, because they're messing with this portal technology. We know they are, um, and it's, it's, it's probable that the portals are being fueled by the batteries that they were looking for. That was mentioned in the first episode. These, these lithium batteries, these lithium-esque batteries that were powered by Dr. Manhattan. So this is probably the, the power source for those portals. Um, and Wade, Wade Too Keen makes, makes mention, like, are you going to drop another squid on us again? And, and Squid said, or uh, Keen has, says something along the lines, he's like, yeah, well, we got something much more original in mind than that. And uh, I don't know what that's going to be. Um, but there's a lot of players on the board now. And uh, it, it's, it's important to note that, you know, we were introduced to a major player last week who we did not see this week on the show. We did not see Lady True again on the show. Who, who, she and Will Reeves clearly have plans for Tulsa. And I suspect they don't have much to do with whatever it is that the 7th Cavalry has in mind. So it's going to be interesting to see how those plans, if, if maybe they are together, maybe they aren't. Um, it'll be interesting to see how a lot of these, these things shake out in the next week's show. You know, again, we're on episode five. There's four left. And we just got a ton of information that we're not quite sure what to do with, how to process it. So... I mean, we're in, we're in the home stretch here, and and again, we have an episode that was just completely immersed in the in the source material in the graphic novel, and and I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it so damn much. This episode was fantastic, fantastic episode. All right. Uh, I don't want to go down. You know, we kind of talked about the things I wanted to hit on as far as like the speculation, but I don't want to go too, too, you know, I don't want to go too deep on speculation, at least not with this show, because I kind of like the surprises. Um, But we did get an email from the Squidmaster General himself, from Brian Broussard. And uh, this is in regards to uh, last week's episode when we were talking about Lady True. And I I was uh, espousing the connections that the, that the show has with this Vietnam that, that is part of the United States in this, this alternate, you know, 2019 where, you know, the U S won the war where Dr. Manhattan won the Vietnam war for the United States. And, you know, I was going on and on about those connections between, between, between Angela, between lady true. And the most obvious one completely slipped past me until, until the squid master general himself pointed out to me, so I want to give credit where credit is due. And, and, and Brian Broussard, here on the record, documented on the TomCast podcast, quote, I have a theory that Lady True is a surviving baby from the pregnant Vietnamese woman the comedian shot in front of Dr. Manhattan. And I think that makes so much fucking sense. 
I think that makes so much sense. You can see it in it's in the film too. If you want to watch, you'd rather just fast forward to that scene in the film, but you can find it in the comic as well. Uh, it it takes place. Doctor Manhattan's kind of reminiscing about about experiences with the comedian at the comedian's funeral, and he he, he flashes back to a time in Vietnam shortly after the as the war was wrapping up. They were in a bar, and and the comedian is confronted by a Vietnamese woman that he was sleeping with during the war, and she's she's now pregnant. And she comes to, to Eddie, to the comedian, to, to, to live up to the promises that he made to her. And, you know, Eddie, being the jerk that he is, just completely dismisses her. And then after she breaks a beer bottle and slashes his face with it, uh, she, he, he shoots her and kills her dead, and right, shoots her right in the chest and kills her dead. And Dr. Manhattan stands and just watches in, in, I guess what we can call horror, for, for a being who seems to be disconnecting himself with humanity, but he's, he's rather surprised by the results. And, and maybe his, his lingering sense of humanity is all that, that makes him object. Um, and that's more or less where the flashback ends, as Eddie's, Eddie, the comedian, is walking away from the dead body and, and Manhattan's staring at it. And it makes a certain amount of sense that... In the, in the flashback, it stops there, because Dr. Manhattan is thinking about his connections with the comedian. So it makes sense for that flashback to end there. But from Dr. Manhattan's kind of distant, separated from humanity kind of mind, it also makes a certain amount of sense that he might have stepped up and saved that baby that may have still been alive prior to, to the mother, you know, I'm sorry, as, as the mother's laying there dying or dead on the floor, the baby is, is possibly still alive in the womb. And there is a fair amount of, of plausibility that Dr. Manhattan saved that baby and, and, and extricated itself, extricated the baby from the womb and kept it alive. And perhaps that exposure as a baby to Dr. Manhattan, to his powers, uh, is what has led Lady True to be what she is, where she seems to be very, uh, obviously highly intelligent, but also scientifically gifted as well. As we know, she, 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 her fortune was founded on uh, pharmaceuticals and, and, and biomedical tech, and she seems to be able to whip babies up out of nowhere. You know, um, So it seems to me there may be a, a connection there between the two, which will then put her into... Um, they, they, they already interacted with each other, but once things... If, if this comes to fruition... Uh, this puts her relationship with Lori Blake in in a different different uh, stratosphere as well, because all of a sudden you find out that they're half sisters with each other, because they would share the same father. Uh, so, Lady True doesn't seem to be the the most sentimental sentimental person on the show just yet, but does that affect the way Lori processes things going forward? Uh, I again, I, <laughs> Brian points out to me, and I was like, God, I'm so stupid. I was so busy highlighting the, these. Oh, this Vietnam connection, and I missed the most obvious one. And Brian pointed out to me, and I want to give all credit in the world to Brian for, for, for hey, calling me out and saying, hey, dum-dum, how about this idea? And being kind of dead on. So let, let's see. we got four episodes left to see if that's how it shakes out. Uh, I want to thank Brian for sending the email because, uh, hey, we have an email address, tomcastpopcast at gmail.com. Hit me up. Let's talk some more stuff, man. And I'll share it on the show as long as you guys are cool with it. And uh, I, again, like I said, all credit to Brian. 
thank you so much for the support and for listening and, 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 and wanting to engage. I love it. I love it. Man, we are running long tonight, but it was, it was a big episode. So much stuff to go through. Oh, man, I can't wait to, can't wait to talk about episode six next week. And it's going to happen next week. The shows will continue. Uh, next week is Thanksgiving. I will get the shows out as we've been doing, uh, which seems to be uh, Mandalorian on Monday, and then uh, hopefully Watchmen on Wednesday, possibly Thursday morning. I'm going to get them done. And uh, obviously you guys have the holidays. You're going to be with family. You're going to be with friends. The shows will be there for your listening pleasure whenever you're ready to, to download and listen. And uh, with, with that, we're going to wrap the show up. And I, I want to say, uh, once again, please uh, support the show in any way you can. Spread the word about us via social media on Twitter at TomCast underscore PopCast. Uh, at Instagram at the TomCast underscore PopCast. Go on iTunes. Go on Spotify, Stitcher. Whoever does reviews, give us a cool review. That'd be super fun. Uh, and if you want to become a member of Pophead Nation, like the Aspen Hill Chody, like Brian Broussard, the Squidmaster General, uh, go to patreon.com forward slash TomCastPopCast and become a member of Pophead Nation. It's a lot of fun. Uh, we're going to be back very, very soon. Like I said, Mandalorian next, Watchmen after that. And then uh, hopefully as December gets here, uh, Rogers will be back. We're, we're going to be doing the new show. Uh, a lot of news has been happening, and we haven't had a chance to really talk about a lot of it. But I'm waiting for Roger. And then we're going we're gonna to get down and get dirty. And then it's basically countdown until 2020. Can you guys believe it? It's here already. Time to go Christmas shopping. Get the trees out. We're going to be singing Christmas carols, hot cocoa. You know, last year we didn't get to have a lot of fun on this, on this podcast at Christmas time. This year, we're doing fun. We're having fun. Carols and singing and there's going to be so much eggnog. Like, don't even mess with me, all right? Eggnog out the yin-yang. Woo! All right. So with that, thank you guys so much for listening and supporting the show as always. Uh, I want to give a little shout out also. Uh, when we drop this episode, I'll probably also at the same time, we're going to be dropping the new episode of Beer Night in San Diego. Uh, last night we were at New English Brewing Company and we had a fantastic time. That's one of our favorite breweries in San Diego and it's a, it's a really stellar episode sitting down with, with, uh, with Simon and Nina from, from New English. So check that out. I know, I know a lot of you folks who, who listen to this podcast also listen to Beer Night in San Diego, so you're, it's probably already on your radar. But anyone who may not listen to Beer Night in San Diego, check it out. Great times. We had a blast over there, and uh, the beers are insane. So put them on your holiday checklist as well, you know. Head over there, get yourself a nice little Christmas present, a little Hanukkah present, Kwanzaa present, whatever whatever religion you celebrate. Uh, Ramadan? That's a thing. Let's do that. Again, Thank you guys so much for listening. I appreciate all the love and support. And uh, this show is here to stay forever and ever and ever. You're never going to get rid of me. So I hope you're okay with that. All right. I love you guys so much. Thank you for listening once again. My name is Tom. This has been the TomCast Podcast. Ciao, babes. Wade, you can take the mask off. I know what you look like. Regs say to keep them on inside the precinct. Why? We're all on the same side. The concealment of identity is critical to our safety. Wade, do you think I'm a member of the 7th Cavalry? No, ma'am. Then just, why don't you roll that baby up and let me see those sad green eyes of yours. So you're from Tulsa? Close enough. A town called Hugo down by the Texas border. Oh, Jesus. You were in New York on 11-2, huh? New Jersey, actually. 
You still scared shitless? Excuse me. I've heard that people who are in the psychic blast zone still wake up in the middle of the night screaming. I sleep great. Cool. I see you joined the force right after the White Knight. Justice needed to be applied. And once they let you yahoos put masks on, you had an excuse to wrap your entire head and reflect the team. Implying what? Guaranteed protection from psychic blasts. Ergo, you sleep great. Market research. Is that your cover? So you watch a bunch of idiots and they tell you what they hate about the new flavor of Pringles and no one knows your secretly mirror guy? I know you know it's looking glass. But you can have mirror guy if you want. We're not gonna be fucking sunk this year! <laughs> We're the Stanley Cup champions!